This Choircast podcast is brought to you by the book Too Much and Not Enough, Sacred Thoughts Said Out Loud by Karen Schock. This book is for anyone who has big questions about God and is feeling like a misfit among the people who seem to have it all figured out. Journey with me as we dive into the hard stuff and ask the questions no one else seems to want to ask. We will laugh and cry together. You will shake your head along with me as you read the real stories of anxiety and depression, parenting and marriage, and just plain living this life in the messy middle. I don't have all the answers, but my hope in writing this book is that you, the reader, will feel seen. There is a God who is big enough to handle all of our questions and more loving than we can ever imagine. Let's lean into this life together as we learn how to love and be loved in Too Much and Not Enough, available now on Amazon. How can you be part of a religious community that's straight up Sometimes it feels like the church is trying to hold The church on. seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with keep trying to give answers, I would but they never don't even be a know part the questions we're asking. The church is the most vocal political voice against immigration. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church is more concerned with being a good anti-critical they are being homophobic too narrow judgmental disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world <sighs> the church needs therapy Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. And today, our very special guest is Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes. Dr. Walker-Barnes is a highly esteemed scholar, theologian, and clinical psychologist whose work focuses upon healing the legacies of racial and gender oppression. A A professor of practical theology and pastoral care at Columbia Theological Seminary, Dr. Walker Barnes is the author of the of the new book, which we're going to be focusing on today, Sacred Self-Care. She's also written, I Bring the Voices of My People and Too Heavy of a Yoke. So you can check those out as well. And with her compelling insights and thought-provoking work, she has emerged as a leading voice in the pursuit of social change and healing in the Christian church. And she, she doesn't know, she's somebody I've really thought about having on for a long time. And for some reason, when you take the time, make the right connections, get the right email, DM, I'll message people from anywhere. I'll find old accounts. I'll, I'll f- find a friend, anybody I know you, I'm going to figure it out. And so I'm going to stop. There's a lot more. If you tap in with her, can learn more and more details about her work. But I'm going to stop there. Dr. Walker Barnes, thank you so much for being with me personally for this time and with the listeners to the Church News Therapy podcast as well. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, excited for this conversation. Yeah, you know, it is a daunting task to tell our whole story. You know, it's like you hop on, like, tell me about yourself. You're like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I could give you up until six and that'll take me an hour, depending on what exactly we're focusing on. And but at the same time, you know, our this idea of, you know, the medium is the message is our embodied experience. our embodied experiences are not just telling the story. They are the story, right? The voices from our past have spoken into us and still speak through us. Everything we've been through is speaking for better or for worse. That's why we talk about healing. That's why there's some good things that come. Yeah. What are, 
without worrying or feeling, you know, that when people ask and it's like a chronological thing, what are a few moments, stories, people in your life, you know, things you've gone through where you're like, these are a few things that give us a glimpse into what makes you, you and the message you're bringing today. Yeah. Um, that's such a, um interesting question because I just had a big family gathering um, <laughs> two days ago and um, with my, my parents, and their siblings and the conversation as it inevitably does turns to race and racism mm. and our family's experience of that, what it meant for them to integrate a neighborhood, to be the first black families to move mm. into neighborhoods and then to be in the, um, my parents in the group of students that integrated their schools. Wow. And so that was where the conversation um, turned. And, 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 and I said to one of my aunts, I said, you know, it took me a long time to realize that all families weren't having these types of discussions with kids right and so much of who I am is rooted in the story of an African-American family um, that is really just about a generation two generations removed from sharecropping and slavery Mm. Um, and it's our whole life in the American South for the most part Um, and and so that's that's the beginning of my journey that prompted me to start my career in um, psychology, because Mm. I was really interested in um, health disparities, especially around mental and behavioral health, and wanting to to do my part. And um, I talked about it as healing the wounds of God's people, Mm. especially um, those people who were African-American, who were descendants of enslaved people. Um, and, and, And somewhere on that journey as a psychologist, I realized that um, mental health was not enough. Psychology and the social mm. sciences were not enough. I needed theology too, right? I needed something mm. else. Um, and so I ended up going back to school. And, and since then, I have been doing my work around um, in, in the area of seminaries in uh, pastoral care and counseling and practical theology. I'm a professor at Columbia Theological Seminary in, in Georgia um, and have been at a number of other schools. And a lot of my work still today is looking at healing the wounds of God's people, mm. right? Um, if we take Lisa Sharon Harper's the subtitle from her book Fortune, the you know how race broke the world. Mm. <laughs> Part of what I'm interested in is like, so how do we repair this, right? Mm. How do we repair the impact it has had on on all of us? Um, and 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 so yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell. Yeah, who I am. Yeah, yeah. No, it's. It is a fascinating thing as you get older where you're like, oh, what I experienced was what I experienced and it isn't normal for everybody, whether that's a family systems thing, a broader cultural, the sort of the social political situation. It's a very eye opening thing to have serious conversations about what's happening socially, not especially not in an abstract way, but because our family is in this. It is it is a broader social thing, but the political is always personal. But in this case, we're living in the midst of something that's happening. So these embodied conversations are about us and what we're going through. Yeah. 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 Yeah, We, you know, for the podcast, the church needs therapy. Like I'm a person no matter how, where I began my journey, where I'm at now, you know, I love the church and I love God's people too. I love clergy. My wife and I were church planners and pastors for the last 10 years. We actually closed down our church last, 
at the end of May. So we transitioned out of that role. My wife's also a, a therapist. She's a psychotherapist. She's an MFT, has her own practice in the neighborhood. So we're a family where it's very the integration of psychology, spirituality, cultural form. So like it's all it's in the house, right? It, yeah. it's, it's in the yeah. fam. It's, it's yeah. in what we do. <laughs> and for, you know, you're we're around powerful people, right? change makers, clergy, activists, entrepreneurs, people who do all kinds of fascinating things that I love and I support and I think bring so much into the world. Your newest book we're talking about, you know, the we're focusing on the on self on sacred self-care. Right? What are let, let's just begin with a more broader question before the book, you know, why can sacred self-care, I mean, real self-care, not talking about it at a conference, not like here's the latest buzzword, not like now it's vulnerability. No, now yeah. it's, you know, this or that, whatever. I mean, we know the challenges for people to really slow down, to really listen to their bodies, right? You know, that's a different yeah. thing. Talk yeah seeing the journey and doing the journey are not the same thing. Why for, for hype, let's start with like the high power, you know, very powerful people who we know. What are some, why, why is sacred self-care scary or why is it a challenge? Why, why is, well, what are the barriers there? Some of them as we begin. Yeah. Um, and you know, it really did. This book probably has its, its genesis in a lot of rooms around mm. powerful people. Mm. Right. Not not even just powerful in terms of influential, but powerful in terms of their commitment to ministry mm. and their their level of dedication to ministry. Some of them in very marginalized places and places where people were struggling with poverty mm -hmm. um, and in other and other ills. Um, but some of them, you know, um, denominational leaders. Right. I kept being in all these rooms and all these conferences where I was noticing people who were burning the candle at both ends mm, for the sake mm. of ministry. And as a therapist, I kept saying, this is not sustainable, mm. right? Like you, you cannot function like this, you know, as a therapist, I know where this goes. It's not mm -hmm, good. Exactly. Right. Um, and so I began um, teaching people about self-care and I was, and I would talk about it and over the years, I noticed as I was trying to find my own voice, having, you know, left the job in psychology, gone to seminary, trying to figure out, okay, how do I fit in this place now? The the place where I found myself over and over again was I was always bringing people's attention to the need to take care of themselves, mm. right? Whether it was a congregational pastor or um, somebody who is an activist on, you know, the front lines uh, of marches or somebody who's working with um, unwed teenage mothers, right? And, and some, and, and, you know, in, in California, right? it, I always found myself being the voice saying, I'm noticing you and I'm noticing how you're feeling. And I'm noticing not just what you're telling me about the ministry, but I'm noticing how you look. And I'm noticing how mm. you sound. Mm. And I notice that I'm seeing somebody who is in danger of burnout mm. um, and illness. And we need to talk about this. Right. Yes. Um, and so I started teaching about self-care. Right. And, and at the same time, I was trying to practice it as someone who struggles with chronic illness and with fibromyalgia. And 
in the beginning, people kept saying self-care, what's that, what's that, right? And then eventually, no, there were commercials about it, right? There were mm-hmm. just like, you know, all these different places wanted to Yo, look, do self-care. Look, if, Pan, if Pantene right. Pro V is talking about it, we can start talking about it in our right. meetings. <laughs> and so at that point, people start saying, oh yeah, self-care, yeah, I'm going to take a vacation. Or mm-hmm. yeah, I got a I got a spa visit lined up. Or yeah, mm-hmm. I'm going to get a pedicure. And at that point, I said, no, wait, actually, that's not the self-care I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the self-care that requires you to go spend money or that is a special luxury, which are, I, I love trips. I love spa days. I love pedicures, right? Mm-hmm. But I would say I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, are you sleeping enough at night? Mm. Like, are, are you exercising, right, in ways that are right for your body? Are you spending time with your family, Mm, right quality time with your family are you doing that self that's self-care that's the stuff that sustains us so part of what i'm trying to do in this book is to help us understand self-care is not something that is meant to be consumerist right Mm. or even hedonistic a lot of people think it's selfish but self-care is about how we honor and take care of the selves that god has gifted us with Mm. and it's also about how we sustain ourselves for for ministry, for discipleship, to do the work God has called us to do in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I feel like we probably have a bit of some shared lenses when we're in those rooms with very high, you know, high capacity people, you know, as you know, people yes. in ministry love to say. Cause my thing after my whole journey is I can look at my 10 years and after church planning and leading in that particular way, which it's a very unique thing, right? That clergy being in that role. And there's a lot of very specific, unique, you know, singular in terms of all these different elements of challenges emerging in one place for like a pastor. It's a weird, it's to me, it's a weird thing. I didn't yeah. grow up really in the church so much. I guess it's a strange thing. I loved it, but it's weird. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, and I look back and I'm like, you know, one of the things I'm proud of in that decade is that I never burnt out. I never was like, yeah, of course I'm I'm gonna be tired sometimes when you go through conflict and you things weigh on you and there is a there is a a burden to it. That's just real when in terms of leading and loving people yeah. well. But I was never there was not like an escapist, you know, or this thought of self-sabotaging and how do I get out of it, you know, and I'm burnt out and I can't mm-hmm. is I'm like, there's a there has to be a that was an interesting discovery for me because I was never on staff anywhere at a church before. I had my own unique mm-hmm. journey to get to where I was. But, you know, a year, a year and a half into to leading, I thought, man, what a fascinating thing. It's not easy to be a pastor. And this will go for anyone in the healing world, right? Social workers, therapists, right? The, the stuff right. that we're around. I'm like, it's not easy to do this and maintain your joy. Exactly. Not impossible, but it's not easy because there are so many reasons, things, conflicts, expectations aren't being met, illusions you're being confronted with about how it was all, et cetera. This is a challenging thing to maintain your own center and to maintain a sense of joy, you know, because yeah. the healers are not exempt from being human right? in the full experience, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. How do you, I think about, the, a lot of times the high powered folks driven it's a different energy to lead in that for you're on the front lines you're leading people it's a touch it's such a different energy and requires such different parts of us for healing 
Yeah. For stopping. It's like, this is a grinding, grasping, I'm in control energy where my hands are on things. This is sort of like a sacred allowing and letting go and surrendering. Do you see like that transition to the self-care? Like what is, what gets lost in translation? Why it is hard for, to make that move into that different thing that's required for self-care? Yeah. Part of this has to do with um, this idea called sanctification. There's a psychologist, not, not sanctification as we think about it theologically, but there's a psychologist. Dude, that's the, we, got, we got the traditional Christian roots here. Now we're talking right, about so I got to make sure she's, we're like, wait, no, 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 not that. <laughs> she's taking me back to Bible college 15 years ago. Come on. Yes, no, but we're not talking about John Wesley's notion of sanctification <laughs> and justification. We're not talking about that. But there's a psychologist, Kenneth Pargament, who talks about sanctification as the way in which we see our work as holy, right? Mm. And what it means when we see our work as holy and sacred. Mm. And when we approach our work in that way, um, there's some positives to it. But part of the challenge is that though the job of pastor, um, not, not even to mention church planner, that's pastor plus something else, right? Uh, but the job of pastor has a lot of different parts to it that are in some ways completely disconnected from each other, right? The skill mm-hmm. sets that a pastor has to have, um, especially today, that it becomes increasingly a complex job. Mm-hmm. When we see our work as sacred, it is hard for us to disentangle which part of the work is sacred, mm-hmm. right? Like, is the sermon sacred? Is the committee meeting sacred? Is the bake sale sacred? Mm. Is the fact that the kitchen sink needs to be fixed sacred? <laughs> right? Mm. right? Like so, and so part of what happens is we just say all of it is sacred because we don't know how to discern which is which which is the sacred part of, of mm. the job of pastor. And when we say all of it is sacred, then we try to give our 100, our 200 percent to every single element of the position, which is impossible, right? Um, and, 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 the, and if we do that over the long term, eventually we will burn out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of it is that we are trying to be excellent at so many different things because we think that every bit of it is the sacred work. But it's quite possible, and I think it's the truth, that a lot of what we do in, in, in church leadership is often mundane every day. And it is, it is incidental to ministry, right? It's something we have to do. Yes, this is an add on, but it's not the core of proclaiming the gospel of healing, um, tending to the sick and the orphaned and the prisoner and the poor, right? That's Mm -hmm. the heart of the work, but then it takes all these other things along with it that if we try to give all of our attention to the same level of effort to the committee meeting as you do to the sermon, as you do to every single little issue, yeah, it'll be too much. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, just to, to, to transition a bit in, in the intro to the book, you say this book offers practices and reflections to help you discern your bodies spirit given wisdom about what you need to be well right and I, I feel like in the sort of the public you know spectrum of christian to progressive post-christian kind of world we may be involved in through media you know we, we have some shared people there i feel like there's there seems to be this 
a rising, growing, not brand new, but growing awareness of the wisdom of the body, of listening to our bodies, of the location of our bodies and the incarnational wisdom and profundity that comes with that, right? There's more talk around that, which I think is amazing. Yeah. You know, I think, which I think is so helpful, which I think is, re helps people reclaim so much of their agency and power, you know, and, and, and that. What is, what is the great, what are, what is the gift our body spirit given wisdom, as you say, it like offers to our life, especially as we're thinking about self-care? Yeah. You know, part of what Christianity inherited from its sort of Greco-Roman origins was this splitting of the body, right? Mm. So body, mind, and then spirit for many people is also separate. Whereas we saw um, from much of church history, we've seen the body as this bad thing, Mm. right? Um, Especially if you've come out of sort of evangelical charismatic backgrounds where you know there's a lot of focus on original sin and original sin is all about the body right it's like eve's body did this bad thing and so then Mm -hmm. adam's body did and so then their bodies did a bad thing together and we're all born in this badness right that's that's Mm -hmm. kind of the story that we're Mm -hmm. we're told and that part of the christian life is we are striving to transcend Mm -hmm. the body right Mm -hmm. and so much of our which i think is ironic because what god actually did was become embodied in order to reach us that Mm. jesus took flesh the word of god became flesh and dwelt among us and ate Mm. with us Mm. and like and 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 and, you know danced with us and drank wine with us right Mm. um and suffered with us and cried with us and all of these other things Mm. but somehow we take that and get away from it very quickly in church history. Interesting. And we become in this religion that is about subjugating the body, suppressing mm-hmm. the body, repressing the body. And as a result of that, many of us, we stop paying attention to our bodies, right? Um, including when our body is telling us what it needs. Mm-hmm. And so part of what I'm trying to do in this book is to help us to claim a healthy relationship to our body, um, thinking about our body as a gift of God. You know, when it says that we, we've been shaped and molded by the potter, right? That we are this gift of, of God. And the only way we experience God is through our bodies, right? Um, through our body, mind, spirits, that there is no division, it's one. And so part of what I'm trying to get people to do is actually pay attention to the bodies. A lot of times when, when clergy and church leaders get in trouble, mm-hmm. it is often they stop paying attention to themselves. They've stopped mm-hmm. taking care of themselves. Their needs are not being met in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. And so they begin, it's, it, it searches for unhealthy outlet, right? And so you have addiction, you have ethics violations, right? A lot of this comes from, oh, I didn't realize my body was telling me it needed something, right? And I didn't deal that well. And so I ended up dealing with this very poorly. So I'm trying to get people to, yeah, pay attention to your body. It's okay. Your body is giving you wisdom. Your body is how you interact with the world. Mm. Listen to your body. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That is so good. Yeah. I think it's, uh, you know, my, a part of my unique journey was I sort of had this pleasant indifference to religion as a teenager where like I went to Catholic school as a first, second, third grade. I stopped going. I tell people I went to public school in fourth grade as LA Unified School District in Los Angeles. 
kids are cussing and fighting. I was like, this is the closest I'm gonna get to salvation. I'm here. I can finally be, I can finally be myself. First day of school. I'm like, well, you can just cuss and fight. You're here. No one really gets in trouble. And I'm thankful looking back, you know, my parents who were, you know, Catholics that when I was like, I don't want to go to mass anymore. Right. It wasn't some ideological, like ex cathedra. This is ridiculous. At like nine years old, it was just like, I don't want to go. And they didn't force me, shame me, coerce me. I'm super grateful, really grateful for that. So in my own indifference, I went on my own journey where my, this spontaneous awakening moment I had with God while I was 18, there was no youth pastor. There was no sinner's prayer. There wasn't even a, a, a rigid belief system attached to it. It was a direct experience where the location was in me and through me and as me. So my faith began by having to trust this deep inner compass of the Christ within when I didn't have guides, you know, and I yeah. coming into this, I know growing up in the church, that's not the experience. I was also on mushrooms at the time. It's a long story. <laughs> Um, but you know, in those rooms you're in with pastors, my relationships with clergy along the way, I'm like, oh, pastors can be really good at reading the Bible, but not reading their own hearts. Yeah. And really good at reading the sacred text without reading the sacred text of their own bodies, the fatigue, yes. the pain they're carrying, the hurt they didn't heal, etc. You know, and that seems I think when you grow up for people within a religious tradition, that movement seems to happen much later, if ever. Right, right. And yet what yeah. you're saying is the calling is like, no, that's actually central to the path forward. Yes, I, I actually think this is. And I, I, the more I have practiced this and lived into it, the more I've been thinking, no, this is the core hmm. of discipleship, right? We, we are created by God and, and, and placed in a world that is created by God, right? And we're created with free will, uh, right? Here, here, live, right? Like, go, go. here's mm -hmm. a planet. I'm giving you a planet, do something, go, live. And I think part of what, what our task is, is finding our way back uh, to our authentic selves as we were created by God, right? Because uh, the world tells us lots of other things about who we are, from the time we're born, the world stamps this imprint on us, who we are, how we're supposed to be in the world. And I think for us to learn how to listen to ourselves and say, wait a minute, no, God, God is here, right? God is here and God is in our interactions. And how do I begin to listen to myself? God created my body to work in a very specific way in the world. Mm. Why would I ignore that? Right? Mm. Like like God has created our bodies to need water and certain nutrients and to move and to touch, right? Um, like God created us to do all of that. But we have taught ourselves that somehow ignoring that is good. Mm. And, and we're the, we're the only of, of, of all of God's creation. Humans are the only ones who do that. And, and Christians seem to be uniquely, like exceptionally good at it, right? Like I'm going to ignore my body so that I can do all these other things. But, you know, like we'll pride ourselves on how little sleep we get, mm -hmm. but our bodies are designed to need sleep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like what are we, what are we, what are we trying to do by trying to transcend our creation? 
And it will mm. often be very deeply faithful people that will also talk about, well, I'm trying to, you know, I, who, who has time to sleep? I'll sleep later, but you're designed to need sleep every day. Mm. And so part of it is really saying, wait, this is how we were created. Let me accept that. Let me let me live in that and 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 dwell in that. And also that part of that creation is choice and agency mm. about my body, right? So there's there's that part of it too. So where's this this sense of becoming who I am and who I really feel like I am called to be? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, agency is definitely something I've thought about quite a bit the past 10 years when you're around so many people and you're leading people and guiding people. And when people have the, it's like these profound and such simple awakening moments. I was just talking with a friend and we're like, you were talking about something. I'm like, conceptually, it's very simple. Experientially, very difficult. So, so often in relationships and in our life, we prefer conceptually complex because then we can just kind of avoid doing it by just talking about it ad nauseum i'm like no usually the answer is quite simple conceptually it's very difficult because this requires inner reserves of courage Mm -hmm. of you know bravery of trust of vulnerability or whatever the things it's simple to think about but it's actually hard to do it's usually we prefer the complexity because then I can just tell five other friends and tell my therapist the same thing 20 times you know and come back a year later or whatever and Oftentimes that constant talking is an, un, to me, is an avoidance of doing the thing that's required. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so you have a book, it's structured for reflections, right? Yeah. So we, we didn't, I didn't, no, we, I didn't make that clear about the book. So this is a book where it's read devotionally. There's, there's a, there's different days of reflections. There's practices connected to it. So people understand that. And so I'm not going to, I don't want to give away all the goods. That, that's why the book's there. The book is to be entered into. It's to be received. Of course, it's to be bought. So you can do those things <laughs> along the way. Um, but in one of the, I want to talk about a couple to give people a glimpse of some of the things we're, we're talking about. You're talking about in the book. One of the reflections, you talk about how self-care is subversive. And I feel like we may have already sort of entered into those waters a bit, even in the last answer you gave. But how is being intentional, right? Being serious about our own spiritual well-being and self-care subversive in the culture and the context we're living in today? Yeah, this is one of the, the, I think, the pearls of wisdom in the book that I came to through my own self-care journey. And specifically through failing, right? Mm -hmm. How failure taught me something. So I began my own intentional self-care journey over 20 years ago. It was right right after my 30th birthday. And part of what I realized over the next at least decade is even though I had this intention to practice self-care and I had an idea of what that looked like for me, I kept failing at it. Mm, And I would often guilt myself Mm -hmm. about failing at it, right? Why am I not doing the things that I know I need to do? Why am I not exercising consistently or eating healthy foods consistently? What is going on with me? I'm such a screw up. Why is this so hard? Mm. And at some point I realized that it wasn't that I was somehow uniquely incompetent Mm -hmm. at this, right? Because a lot of people were saying Mm -hmm. it was hard. Everybody was saying it was hard. 
I realize it's because our our society is not structured in a way that supports self-care. Oh, interesting. Right. We're taught that we're supposed to give our all to job, um, to um, to job especially, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then maybe to family, but not to family in terms of quality time. <laughs> but like there's so many things competing for our time so that simple things like how do I make sure I am eating in a healthy way? Mm. How do I, I make sure that, you know, so like eating, I realize like to eat well means that we have to mostly cook, like not, <laughs> not do takeout. Mostly. You actually have to mm. cook in order to eat well and to cook. That means you have to have food that's available, which means you have to have time to mm. go to the grocery store. Mm. Right. And I found myself fighting for time to go to the grocery store. Mm. And, and why is that? Well, because my job and, and my responsibilities as mother, right. Mm. And wife had me so scattered and doing so many things that that was difficult, right. For mm. us to find time to go to the grocery store. And then for us to say, okay, now we actually have the time and energy to, to cook. Right. And so I began to realize that, Oh, I'm not going to, nobody's going to give me this. Nobody's going to suddenly say, Hey, we want to make sure you are spending a couple of your hours each day on your Mm self-care. And I realized that if I was going to practice self-care, I was going to have to take it for myself, right? Mm -hmm. That I was going to have to resist the society that told me that my worth is dependent on how much I produce. Mm -hmm. Because that's how many of us, whether you're a stay at home parent or you work for a corporate a big corporation, or you work for a church. Mm. Most of us think that our worth is somehow connected to how much we're doing, how busy we are, right? Um, And so it is countercultural to actually say, if I am going to do these things, that means I have to carve carve out time for myself, right? I have to protect my time. And so I'm preparing readers for the idea that self-care is not going to be easy. Um, Mm. As the the way our society is structured, it is not going to be easy because Mm. our society is structured for us to spend as little um, time on our actual care and more of our time on like creating profits for for somebody else, right? Mm. Being useful to other people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, to that uh that cultural gravity pulling us towards constantly being productive is very yes, powerful. Yes. Very powerful. It is powerful. And we don't always realize it because we're so in it, but it's extremely powerful. You know, I the amount of mental justification we need to do to just chill sometimes. Yes. Yeah. You're like, did I, I sent seven emails. I did that. I did this. Can I, now can I just watch this show or read this book or just have a glass of wine and just chill for a sec? No, I, I, well, no, I'll do three more. I'll do three more. Then I'll do it. You know, that's what, that's what I call the justification mixtape. You know, you're in your head justifying everything. Did I, I'm like, we're literally in our minds justifying our ability to just be. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And and think about the number of. The, the number, how many stay at home um, moms, especially I've met, but stay at home parents, if you ask, you know, because we always ask, what do you do? Right. Mm. And then the way in which people will 
feel like they have to apologize almost for that. Well, I don't, I don't work outside the home. I just raised my kid. Just like that. Like, that's a lot of work to mm. take care of a family and a home. But people feel like because I am also not out in the world making money or doing something productive for some external organization that somehow I have to justify why that is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, and we, my wife and I are coming out of the, our kids are four and six. So, you know, we've been, we've been in the trenches, you know, you go through <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and uh, you know, those, those first, like you have, they're almost exactly two years apart. So when you go through those stages until they go to school, like once they're in preschool and kindergarten, like it's, it's a, it's a different thing. And like therapist, pastor, then transitioning to writing for me, like, we both have flexible schedules. Our none of our parents live in Hawaii. They're all in California. So it's us. Yeah. And we're like, we're locking in. When I see my friends, like my kids are at the grandparents' house on a Sunday afternoon. We're hanging out. I'm like, that's cheating. We don't <laughs> I haven't had that for seven years. <laughs> um, but for us, like we can, we you know, we transition and I got, you know, three hours, I'll pick them up. We we've been doing that and it works and it's great. And we've made intentional decisions to be present with our kids, especially, you know, those developmentally, those first mm -hmm. five years, et cetera. But if I spend three hours, especially when they're younger, if I spent three hours straight with two kids, I need nine hours after to like that, that stay at home-ness, you know, and just the stigma around that people might feel or why they're justifying or downplaying themselves right. or whatever it is. I'm like, do you know that to me, the amount it takes in two hours is more is more for me internal energy that would be required for five hours of writing or right. or doing this or that you know right. I remember seeing this funny meme and it was like it's something like you know that 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 hard moment when you've been playing with your kids for two hours and you look up and it's only been seventeen minutes right <laughs> <laughs> but that's but I get that even the challenge and how much energy is required but because it does not directly, it does, but it does not directly relate to the, a system of production connected to a system of consumption. We somehow are like, this is not it. You know, we're finding ways to justify, to make sense. And it, and you're right. It, it That isn't just personal. We've all been conditioned in a larger context. Yeah. The, the gravity of that, the, the cultural environment is so powerful that it's in us, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, another one, these are the only two I'm going to give people. So the rest of them is in the book. And so you're going to have to get that. But the other one, which I think is a, it's a, it can be a complex one and it can be a bit confusing for some and how to do this well is, you know, another one of your, the reflections is focus on owning our anger. Right. So yeah. do I, can I, can I, so can I just be pissed? Do I yeah. be mad for a little bit? Like, do we own it in terms of we don't deny it and we embrace it, but eventually it's power, it's power over us dissipates, right? It's a confusing thing in some ways. Yeah. And as clergy activists, parents, anybody who's to me, anybody who's really trying to care, mm -hmm. a lot of people have checked out, you know, they're on yeah. autopilot. They're not yeah. the vulnerability of an open heart and the self emptying love, you know, in our, in our own tradition mm -hmm. that we see not everyone is, not everyone cares about that, to be honest. You know, we know that. Yeah. But for the people who are still like, I'm always just in awe of like for people who are 
still trying to care, still trying yeah. to love. I'm like, that. that's what we do here. That That's amazing. I love that. Um, yeah. Inevitably along the way, we are confronted with a barrage of pain and we're faced with injustice and the interconnected in our culture the interconnected webs of institutionalized white supremacy, patriarchy, oppression, poverty, like those, when you first learn about how those systems are connected, it's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. You know, it's many, many reasons to be angry and cynical. Like I get that, you know, and in, in that, as we're trying to keep our hearts open, we're trying to keep healing. We're trying to let go and forgive and do all the things what, do, what does it feel like, you know, a therapist, you're around clergy, right? all these different intersection of your work. What is some of the insight? What does it feel like to own our own anger? What is that process yeah. shape like? Yeah. Yeah. So this, again, comes from my experience in working with people, both as, a, a, you know, a church leader, but also as a therapist. Mm. Right. And, 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 and so part of the book is learning how to care for these different aspects of ourselves. So there's a section on caring for our emotional selves. And mm. part of our emotional experience includes anger, right? It's, and, 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 and Christians in particular have a hard time with this because we often assumed that, that Christianity is about, um, well, one of the fruits of the spirit is kindness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes that gets, that gets understood as being exclusive of anger that kindness Mm. means we are never angry Mm. and that it is sinful to be angry right um and so a lot of christians um especially christian women Mm. um folks who are socialized as girls and women what we do is when we feel anger we repress it we don't we don't want to feel anger right and so we we repress it as a therapist i know how destructive that is mm-hmm. right because when we repress our anger it usually begins to sort of um become toxic mm-hmm. and to express itself in other ways and it's, and one of the ways is that it ends up you know kind of um corro- being corrosive right mm-hmm. it begins to kind of wear us down from inside out um, and so part of our, what we need to do is um, anger is not bad. It's a, what we call a signal emotion. Mm-hmm. Anger is usually a sign that something's wrong, which is mm-hmm. why when we begin to open our eyes to injustice, we feel angry a lot. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't remember who said, you know, if you're not angry, then you're not paying attention. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But when we begin to see, you know, racism, sexism, classism, you know, xenophobia, when we begin to see all of this, we will get angry and we'll be angry a lot. Mm -hmm. And rather than repressing that, what we need to do is actually pay attention to it. And that's not Mm -hmm. owning it. It's paying attention to it. What is my anger telling me, Mm -hmm. right? Is it telling me that I am hurt, Mm -hmm. right? That I feel betrayed? Is it telling me that I'm feeling vulnerable and tender and I need to to take care of that right now? Is it telling me that I'm actually feeling lonely, right? And I'm not mm. feeling loved and I need to feel loved right now? Mm. Is it telling me that I don't feel safe and I need I need to I need to feel safe? I need somebody to help me feel safe right now. And so part of what I'm trying to encourage people to do is not owning your anger in a way that says, I'm gonna hold on to this anger and make it mine like forever. Exactly. But rather it's to look at it. Not hide it away either, but look at it. Okay, I'm angry. 
What is mm. that about, right? And to actually f- figure out what it's about so that then you can figure out what is the need that you need to address. Mm, that's so good. Yes, that is that is so, so good. And I think there's there's so much clarity and also taking us back to the wisdom of the body. Yes. Because the observance comes only possible through the awareness of what's happening yeah. within. And Anger I think- is something that happens in our bodies, right? Oh, like- it's funny, like I, you know, that's why you know the wisdom of the body. People are learning more and more. Like your body will tell you the truth in ways your mind won't, because your mind has yep. defense mechanisms. Yes. Like I'm I, good, people don't feel that way. Good people don't right. think those thoughts, so therefore I deny yeah. it, etc. So people are like, I'm not mad. I'm like, then why is your chest on fire right now? Right. <laughs> you know, when I used to go to the doctor and um and I have my 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 physical and my doctor would ask me how I was doing, and I would say, I'll know as soon as you check my blood pressure. Mm. right because i would say <laughs> mentally <laughs> mentally i think i'm fine mm, exactly. but my blood pressure might tell a different story mm. right and so my doctor would kind of look at me like what and i'm like no my blood pressure is going to tell me how i'm doing you know i'm wondering if i really forgive my colleague can you check my blood pressure and i'll right? know whether that's a yes or a no <laughs> no yeah i think that i don't know if i've heard that specific phrase before that concept of signal emotion which makes so much sense and even for people listening i'll give you an example of that i am a very in i'm an actually an introverted person and my own patterns if i don't pay attention goes from introversion towards isolation right you know for people familiar with the enneagram i'm enneagram yeah. five people meet me and they wouldn't think that just because i can talk but i'm like no trust mm-hmm. me like my energy after a few conversations, I'm done for the day. Trust me. <laughs> I'm like, I, I had a podcast before this because I wrote a chapter for a book that came out today. So I'm like that and this. I'm like, I'm I'm done. I'm going to take 10 yeah. hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I've realized over the years there were there will be moments where some of my defense mechanisms and coping mechanisms of my default patterns is like cynicism and basically like distancing myself and just talking, you know, bad about people in my head or whatever. And when I see a group of people and specifically men who are like kind of collaborate collaborators, they're all connected in ministry and they seem to like have a great camaraderie the 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 stronger my reaction of cynicism of basically just like talking shit about him was my first response of like oh these you know these fools are this or that or whatever yeah um the signal emotion is like i'm like kind of ain't distant and i'm just cynical or there's some anger how i handle like hurt and those type of things and i'm like oh i already know myself if that reaction's stronger it's because i'm feeling lonely yeah Mm, yeah yeah kev yeah so that that emotion what you said it's a signal and i know my patterns well enough to be like oh the volume on that's turned up a little bit more today which tells me i'm feeling disconnected and lonely in my own collaborative relationships or whatever it is i'm feeling a bit on my own island you know and i think a part of the the paradox of the owning of the anger is the more you observe non-judgmental awareness and the more we observe it and include it you know in the owning part the more we own our anger the less likely we are to be controlled by it and to react out of it the and exactly. the I, and the other irony is the more we repress it and deny it the more power it has over us to sort of yes. you know sublimate and come out in other areas and actually control us so yeah that symbol yeah. of like what is happening that's what you're saying what is this no i do feel this way what is this yeah. telling me Right. Yeah. Or even I do feel this way 
And I know if I if I speak now, mm-hmm. that may, what may come through is the anger, and it may make mm-hmm. me say things that I that I can't I can't take back. So let me just say I'm going to remove myself from mm-hmm. interaction until the anger is gone. Right? Sometimes mm-hmm. it's that too. It's it is not safe for me to speak now because of what I'm feeling, and I know myself well enough to know that once I calm down. Mm. I have better perspective, right? And mm. so I know I've paid attention to my anger enough to know I need to let this pass before I move forward, right? Mm. It's it's all about that process of yeah, I so and when I say signal emotion, I imagine like anger waving a white flag. Mm. Right? Hey, look at me. Right? Mm. Something something's going wrong. It's an invitation to look deeper. Oh, I love that. That's that that right there in terms of like day to day real transformation when we can see and experience those things as invitations to go deeper as you say so well in real time yeah right to me there's a process of like when you start to be self-aware you see it after then you see it like a little bit more after then you see it during but you're like damn it i've come too far i'm still going And then it then it's right before, and sometimes you stop yourself, and then yep. eventually the wisdom and the awareness is like, oh, the moment it arises, I can spot it. Oh, I I, yep. I could feel my ego contract and the anger start to arise. I'm like, oh, I, I know what that is, you know, yeah. and that that's the yeah. invitation. Yeah, that's yeah. so good. Um, okay, as we start to wind down, I don't ask this to everybody, but life we know there's high levels of burnout in people who are sort of in the healing business, right? Therapists, pastors, social workers, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. High levels of burnout, turnover, short, you know, uh, did that for five years, probably won't go back, you know? And then you also see that in terms of like people, ER nurses. And I think there's actually yep. some connections there, different, different yeah. paths, but there's some connections there internally of why that is. <clears throat> it takes work the work you're talking about of self-care and transformation to, to keep caring. Yeah. You know, I feel like I, I'm 38. My wife and I will turn 39 and actually I'll turn 39 a month from today. And to keep the heart open to both receive, because they're connected, the closed heart that the, the same parts of our hearts that are closed is it closes you off from receiving and giving love. Right. Yeah. Um, To keep the heart open and to dare to keep, caring and trying and loving and giving in healthy ways to me i'm like that's a life that's a life's work right there that's a big part of how we stay very human and then we stay in the in in this path why do you not how we're talking about how in the podcast but as a person who's also clearly giving their lives to their own version of that now as you keep working with students you keep working with leaders you write this book when you are just sort of looking off at people you care about, what do you really want for them? You know, you have an engine that drives you to love and care. But when we look at people, it's like, I've had more clarity on that recently. I'm like a big part of my engine that drives my work and writing now and some other things I'll, I'll hopefully that are coming is I want people who don't feel included to feel included. Mm-hmm. And I want people who whose work 
culturally is seen as peripheral, but in the kingdom of guys at the center, I want them to know that and I want to support them and empower them. And like, that's just me. I'm like, I want people to know yeah. that, you know? So yeah. for you, you look at so many people you love and care about who you believe in their mm-hmm. work. Like, what do you, here's a book, here's your teaching here. What do you want for them? You know, I think what I most want people to know is that they are beloved by God. Mm. Right. Like every single, every single human, um, especially those who have been taught that they aren't Mm. right. Mm. Who've been taught that they either aren't loved by God or that they're loved by God less than God loves other people. Or some of them have been told that they're an abomination to God. Right. Mm. Um, Mm. I want, everyone to feel that they are beloved by God and for us to know that we are beloved by God, not just as individuals, but also together. Mm, mm. Right. Um, So, yeah, I think that that is part of what I, I want folks. And that we have, you know, we each then also have a spark of the divine within Mm. us. Maybe that's actually the bigger thing I want people to know. Mm that we each have a spark of the divine within us. I imagine what, what, how would we treat ourselves and each other differently if we believed that everybody had a spark of the divine, mm. that God, God is in every single person? Yeah, how would we Im- approach each other differently? How would we approach ourselves differently? How would our world be structured differently if we believe that? Mm. Mm, that's so yeah. good. Yeah, you know, you know, she has a history in the church. You hear it. So with every head bowed and every eye. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because sometimes I'm like, I'm not that kind of Christian. I'm not that Christian-y. And then I start saying stuff. I'm like, oh, yeah, I am. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, I know without a con with, you know, post congregational life for 18 months or certain moments, I'm like, don't give me a damn mic because you're not going to get it back for 30 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, Dr. Walker Barnes, I appreciate this so much. This is an honor to have you. You know, I told you I've been, I've been, you know, from the background being like, they're, they're, I'm, I'm going to get her. It's like getting people as guests and doing things and publishing. It's like a treasure hanger. I get the right people. And now, boom, it's like, and now I got it. You know, so I'm grateful for the time and for people tuning in. Dr. Shaniqua Walker Barnes, the newest book we've talked about, Sacred Self-Care, Daily Practices for Nurturing Our Whole Selves, which also we didn't touch on this. But as we grow and evolve in our faith, as, our, as, as we see faith as an expanding, more inclusive, more justice-oriented, more loving thing in a culture where oftentimes people see faith as a straight path, it can be challenging for people to find resources. Like most devotionals, you're like, appreciate the heart, not going back there. <laughs> you know, yep. I would never give this to somebody. You know, and yeah. so I think for people who have done the work of growing and evolving in terms of moving forward in our faith, but still are doing the pastoral caring and healing, these resources are so special because they're just not always there. They're, these aren't always mm-hmm. the resources that are populating Lighthouse Christian Bookstore, Christian Way or whatever. I don't know, whatever a local books, the Christian bookstore is called. Basically, they ain't going to let my books in there in for me personally. <laughs> um but these resources are such a gift, you know? So for people who are still, 
you know, desiring those reflections, des- desiring those devotional type of guided paths, concrete paths, which we need in this open field of crisis, there are paths through it to experience the expansive beauty in our own journey. This is a, a great gift to that. So thank you so much. I'm grateful for the time. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I appreciate you seeing that because mm. that was part of the desire for me for this mm. book. Mm. That's awesome. Have a great day.